Latin Reformation, Episode 2, Reform Scholasticism. Dear listeners, welcome to the second episode of the Forgotten Reformation. I am JC. And I am Zach. And today we're bringing two topics to you. We got the first on Reformed Scholasticism, which I am quite looking forward to. And the second is on the Scottish Church in the Netherlands, uh, which is something I heard about recently and was quite interested in as well. Zach, do you want to give us a a quick overview of these two subjects? Yeah, so when we dive into uh, Reformed Scholasticism, we are going to be looking at, you know, what were these scholastics? What were they standing for? But also we're going to be trying to apply what the Reformed Scholastics learned and what the Reformed Scholastics did uh, to ourselves and to our our listeners, and we're going to try to make them, you know, uh, stand fast to the truths that uh, the Lord has committed to them, and to make them have greater awe and reverence uh, for the oracles of God. And then, uh, with the uh, Scottish Church in the Netherlands, it's not as developed of a topic, and you know, as we launch this more and more, we're hoping to have listener feedback to know really what we should talk about. But we will be discussing truth and unity as our application. Also, a little bit about how the Netherlands had all these kind of thriving Reformed communities with and in itself of not only Scots, but Huguenots and Belgians and uh, English Reformed as well. So we we are thankful that uh, the Lord has allowed us to be able to record this podcast, and, and we hope that it will be a blessing to those who will uh, hear it, and it will make them uh, stand fast in the truth and love righteousness more and more by understanding the history of the Church of Christ. Yeah, that's just it. You know, we we do want to talk about history and theology, as interesting as that is, but we're, we are very concerned with applying it to us, to the listeners, that we would be able to learn from history. The history is the study of the providence of God. It's how God has chosen to work, and there's so much for us to learn in it, lots of truth to apply to our lives, lots of truth that we have lost and forgotten about that we want to recover and regain and spread back through the church. Yeah, and I, I think that is that is true. And ultimately, what, uh, what we long to have our listeners say as we look back on church history is... Is the is the what the bride of the song of Solomon or the bride of Christ in the Song of Solomon says uh, in in chapter one verse four draw me and we will run after thee. Um, we want to be drawn. We want to know more of the love of Christ, and we want to run after those truths and the presence of Christ, and that's what we we hope uh, we hope to do. So, Zach, uh, what do you want to tell us just as an intro to Reformed scholasticism, a term that might be very unfamiliar to many of our listeners? So, um, first off, I would, I would say as an intro to Reformed scholasticism, there's, there's quite a bit of stuff out there that would uh, 
make people perhaps be a bit afraid of touching Reformed scholasticism, of diving into it, perhaps because it mixes too much philosophy with religion, or because it's not as deeply uh, exegetical, it's not as, as based upon the Bible as the Reformers were. And I would really caution against that view and say, Reformed scholasticism in and of itself is kind of the period where we got a very good, I think, doctrinal understanding. And and if you want an example of someone who I and others would, would consider a reform scholastic, it would be William Perkins. Uh, William Perkins, the kind of the father of English Puritanism, he is a reform scholastic, and he, he brings a lot to the table. Certainly a Reformation Heritage Books is reprinting his, I think it's going to be a 10-volume set. I only have the first volume. That is the price of being a poor seminarian. Um, I think they have a, I think they have up to four volumes now printed. Yeah, yeah, again, correct. the price of being a poor seminarian. Um, but, no, I think Perkins offers a good intro. Also, Francis Turretin, his institutes are printed by Presbyterian and Reformed. And that offers a good intro. But for our listeners... Um, if you want a quick, easy intro to the thought of Reformed scholasticism, I would recommend you just Google Helvetic Formula Consensus. Helvetic Formula Consensus. A tr- and listen to our previous podcast, which uh, discusses the Helvetic Formula Consensus. Yeah, a so bit. <laughs> a guy by the name of uh, Martin uh, Klauber, I believe he got his PhD from either Susquehanna University or the University of Toronto. I'm not for sure on that, but he is the leading expert on the um, uh, the let's shall we say the Turretin, the Orthodox Turretin and the unorthodox Turretin, uh, Turretin Francis and his son. Jean Alphonse. And so um, Martin Clauber actually has translated this, and if you just Google it, you can pull up the document, and if you read it, it will be a relatively brief explanation of reform scholasticism. So I hope that is, that's well, it's not going to define the term. I'm hopefully about to shed some light on the term, but it will show you the thought. And what uh, sort of time period are we talking about when we're talking about reform scholasticism? When would you say we would call the start of it, and where would it kind of end? In most places, the scholastic movement has died off by 1725, and it's replaced by uh, kind of rationalism, um, or rationalist thought. Um, so... And again, Francis Turretin, he is alive from 1623 to 1687, so he's going to be after Perkins, actually. So, uh, really, I think if you look at it in in Geneva, I I would consider the rise of Reform scholasticism to perhaps begin with with Beza in Geneva. And so, I think the, the best way to define it is perhaps not with years. I mean... I'm certain that scholars do have definitions of the of the years that it it, it, it into, was prevalent, but I would say after the first generation of reformers, 
moving. So our Calvins, our Luthers, basically from 1500 to 1550, somewhere around there. Yeah, so let's let's say roughly um, latter 16th century through the beginning of the 18th century. And that, that I think, is a pretty fair uh, definition. And so Reformed scholasticism... Is is a period of what they would call high orthodoxy. It's it's a very orthodox age. Nobody is really perhaps questioning um, the well. The Reformed scholastics were not questioning orthodoxy or what had been put down by the reformers as a base. Instead, they're enlarging that base. They're they're becoming, I, I suppose, one could say, more theoretical in their theology, and they're trying to really establish a, a reformed tradition. So, uh, reformed scholasticism, I think, can simply be defined as a, a method or methodology of, of doing theology that focuses on presenting information with a thorough exegesis as well as a thorough logical sequence in the presentation. And... Um, it, we don't have a lot of the scholastic thought today in how we present arguments and ideas. So um, it, it's very—it's a very precise system. Scholasticism is, and it leads like Polanus, quite a famous uh, reform scholastic, uh, he, uh, Amandus Polanus. He is going to have in in one of his books, I believe. It is the uh, Syntagma Theologica uh, Christiane. He is going to have a lot of charts in in that book. Like that book is going to be filled with charts. And Perkins's chart on election, predestination, and reprobation is a very popular chart. Beza's chart is also very popular. And these charts are ex- examples of the precision. And, and the way that they like to use logic to inform uh, the, the conclusions they're drawing. If that, if that makes sense, if that's helpful as far as a definition goes. So they are using uh, undoubtedly Thomistic, um, a Thomistic scheme or, or an Aristotelian scheme behind uh, what they're trying to put out. So they're trying to be logical. They're trying to have things well-defined. They're trying to illustrate very clearly how we get from point A to point B and then point C and what the ramifications of point A, B, and C are. So I think they are to be commended for that. Right, so we could say that scholasticism, it's not, people might first assume that it is a specific teaching of the Reformed, but what it really is, it's it's a method. And a really good definition I just found here by J.V. Fesco describes scholasticism as a method of doing theology that sets out to achieve theological precision through the exegesis of Scripture, an examination of how doctrine has been historically fined throughout church history, and how doctrine is expounded in contemporary debate. So it's really it's a it's a method that allows the user of it to really achieve a very precise, a precisely outlined doctrine. Yeah. So if you are to read uh, any of the Reformed scholastics, and I, I would say the most accessible would be Turretin, they are doing a a phenomenal job uh, with 
philosophy, historical theology, and exegesis. So they're, they're, they're covering all their bases. Now, the, the argument that has been put forward against Reformed scholasticism is that they're not being as exegetical as the Reformers themselves were, and instead they're, they're uh, relying too much on uh, philosophical systems, and, and perhaps even too much on historical theology. And I would say, well, no, um, they're, they're really operating very precisely. And, it's, and it is a methodology. It's, it's the method by which they go about uh, discussion, arguments, and presenting information. That, that's what makes reform scholasticism. Yeah, absolutely. And I would argue that, you know, it's, it is very interesting, I think, that we see in basically the height of this reformed scholastic period is where we have the drafting of our most beloved reformed confessions. The three forms of unity, as well as the Westminster Confession of Faith, are in this, coming from these figures, even John Owen has a lot of scholastic methodology in his writing. And so that's why we get such precision, such um, a, a deliberate word choice in these confessions such that they can summarize profound doctrines with very exacting language to, you know, really stand the test of time for centuries to come. That's, that's absolutely right. And I think that's that's uh, really the advantage of Reformed scholasticism. Now, I think Ursinus and, and Oliveanus, as they write the, the Heidelberg Catechism, they, they are our kind of proto-Reformed scholasticism. The Belgic Confession, I don't know that I would, I would say it is Reformed uh, scholasticism. It is a good confession. But the Canons of Dort are definitely a product of Reformed scholasticism. Also, the Westminster Confession of Faith is, is a product as well. And I would say, um, to kind of get a good grip on it, the, the height of Reformed scholasticism, at least in Switzerland, produced the Helvetic Formula Consensus. And I think that's a, a good document, perhaps, just to, to gain a grasp of um, to get some idea of the orthodoxy of, of these men. Is there anything you can tell us about the consensus? Well, so the consensus is primarily, it's going to be the brainchild of, of three prominent uh, theologians in, in Switzerland. And those are going to be Francis Turretin, and uh, J.H. Heidegger, and the other one's name has, has just left me. But, because I always like to have sources handy, as I feel uh, sometimes woefully unprepared for uh, these sort of things. Um, oh, and, and Oosterwald, I believe. Or perhaps it wasn't Oosterwald. Let me just run a quick check here. I think the, the other person I was thinking of was uh, a man by the name of Lucas Gernler. Um, Gern, it was Gernler, uh, Heidegger, and Francis Turretin, I believe, who were really the three responsible for drafting the Helvetic uh, formula consensus. And I think that uh, those three men... Um, Turretin's the most famous. There's not a lot about... Uh, Gernler out there, but 
Johann Heinrich Heinrich Heidegger, I think, is uh, he's he's from Zurich. Uh, he studied, I believe, in in Germany, and he is really uh, going to be one of the guys who's the the framework behind this. And if memory serves correctly, uh, in Heidegger's Canton, which was Zurich. The, the Helvetic formula consensus is going to hang on until the 1740s. It's not going to be repealed uh, by Jean Alphonse in, in 1706. It's going to hang on until, I believe, 1741. Even though it was uh, done away with in other, in other Swiss cantons rather earlier because of our great, not great friend, Jean-Alphonse Turret. Well, and so I think on one hand we could easily attribute it to Jean-Alphonse Turretin and, and sort of... It's more fun to. Uh, for the drama of the story, it's it's very convincing <laughs> to say, or very, very intriguing, let me say that, to have a, a man, Francis Turretin, who's the definition of reformed scholastic orthodoxy, kind of the high watermark, and then to say, well, look what his, his son did. But I think that the truth of the matter is the Helvetic formula consensus was not a popular confession when it came out. And later, when they would have what they would call the Revi in, in Switzerland and France, the Helvetic formula consensus would not come back into popularity during the Revi. Um, it, what would actually come back into popularity would be the second Helvetic confession. The, uh, the the Helvetic formula consensus goes, it really, by let's say 1745, it, it had fallen out of usage and it's never been recovered. Right. Now, would you say that Reform scholasticism was in a sense of building upon the Reformation? Um, yeah, and I think here we have to be uh, careful because... The the reformed scholastics, their exegesis and their um, doctrine in the substance of those things were no different than say Calvin's. Um, they they improved upon some things. They had new newer ideas. Think of this in relation with with the first and second reformations. There was there was a building, a groundwork had been laid, and now there was more theorizing and more building. Um, as well as a lot of practical application to life as well, you know. In the First Reformation, we're recovering those essential truths of Scripture that had been buried for many hundreds of years by, by the Roman Catholic Church and had now come to fresh light through uh, that wonderful work of God. But then, you know, once that foundation is relayed, we're able in the Second Reformation to see a lot built upon it, a lot, a lot more precision um, in these, in understanding of these things, plus application to every area of life. And you have it in the Netherlands, you have it in Britain, you have it in Puritan New England, people seeking to apply the truths of scriptures to every sphere of society. So I think, um, I think that, that that is a, a rise out of the Reformation. It was kind of a necessary consequence. And uh, when I said further theorizing, I, I suppose in a sense, this is what I've I, I meant, but also in the Second Reformation, there uh, there comes a need where they are seeing, I think, in large measure, um, 
after the first generation of, of reformers had, had gone on to be with the Lord, and the second and third generations in this period of reformed scholasticism were faced with crises, um, particularly the Academy of Samur in, in France with publishing Amaraldianism and uh, an aberration in, in their doctrine of Scripture and so on. That, that presents crises, uh, crises uh, or crises for the Reformed Church. And then also there is, as you said, this practical aspect where piety is brought into the forefront. And, and this, I think, is important for people to note. Um, the Reformed scholastics were pious people. They were not advocating a head theology. They were very interested in, in practical living and practical godliness. And they wanted people to have an experimental uh, knowledge of Christ, if I can borrow that phrase from the wondrous Welsh preacher John Elias. I think they were, it's, it's fair to say they were dedicated to these things. And, and also, there would be the push uh, in the Second Reformation on, on piety and uh, lifestyle and, and godliness and so on. Whereas in the First Reformation, it's kind of we brought them out of Rome, and in the Second Reformation, we're, we're learning how to live as, as Protestants, maybe. Um, I, I don't know that that is uh, the most scholarly statement I, can, I could make, but that, I think that is a summary anyway. So I know this is just scratching the surface to a very introduction to an incredibly broad field in Reformed scholasticism. And I think there's so much we can learn, but I think just one really pertinent application here is just, you know, the importance of precision um, leading us to be exacting in our language and to be careful in how we phrase things. And I know there can initially be a bit of a reaction against this. Our culture is so loose and doesn't like it when people are too picky or seem uptight about terms and correcting them. But the truth is that, you know, I'm just thinking here, is not our God worthy of us as accurately as possible portraying him? And, you know, it really does give a lot of credit to the greatness and wonder and mystery of our Lord that he is beyond just... The, the beauty of God is that he's transcendent and imminent. He's imminent in that, you know, we can describe him so simply as God is love and God is spirit. But yet in God's transcendence, you know, it's like we see the church spending hundreds of years developing language to describe in just some nature, the, tri, the triune nature of the Godhead. And when we come to topics like that, the terms we use are important. Um, philosophy matters. When we're discussing free will and God's sovereignty, that's an incredibly philosophical discussion that we do well to be precise in our language in. And, you know, I think that's why we ought to encourage those who study theology, those that can be uh, teachers that can really spend their time delving into such things. And we ought not think of that as a low or um, as a two ivory tower theologian sort of idea, because I do think just as we explore the world and make new discoveries scientifically, I think we can always be discovering more of God and how God has revealed himself in the scriptures. And when we are precise in our language, I do think it's honoring to him. And then even for us who are not maybe the theological type, there's an application even to ethics, you know, as we look at, we see in the, uh, 
Westminster Larger Catechism, a vast array of implications of the Ten Commandments. And so when we are looking at how to obey God and serve him with our lives, it's not wrong to try to be careful. Um, Deuteronomy enjoins us many, many times to careful obedience, to carefully obey the words of God. And today, if you try to obey God carefully, people call you a legalist, but you know, God has given us his law and it's up to us to search out the deep truths and to seek to live accordingly. I, I think that's very right. And I think that uh, as an application to today, what you were saying about precision, precision is so needed in the Christian life. And the reason why precision is, is so needed is because, one, truly our salvation is a Trinitarian salvation. The whole Godhead works uh, in, in the salvation of sinners. And there's some very complex uh, ramifications for doctrines that, that come out of the Holy Scriptures. And I, I think that that's a great uh, application for us today is that we do need to be ready to uh, testify of, of why we think the way that we think. And, and the Reformed scholastics were really leading that, that forefront. But for the individual Christian, I think the, the point of application comes down to be, if you're interested, if you're, if you're following, as, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, your chief end, to, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, then you want to be as precise about knowing that God. You want to know the details. And, and this is not an impious pursuit uh, this is not merely ivory tower theoretical uh, theology. No, it can get a bit heady. And sometimes I think we do rightly have to ask if we should go in certain directions. But ultimately, uh, we serve a particular God. And, and he has called the Christian to be his child. He has adopted him as a, as a son. And therefore... Uh, to know your father means to know him in a in a particular and and precise manner. Now, um, although analogies uh, to God sometimes can be a bit dangerous, God, of course, in His Word, uh, Christ, who is the God Man, refers to God the Father as Father in, in the Lord's Prayer. And if we think about our, our relationship to our earthly father, we, we can say very kind of precise and particular uh, things about them. Just, you know, some of them uh, perhaps like just spaghetti, and some don't and prefer lasagna. And spaghetti and lasagna are just, you know, basically meat, uh, maybe some cheese, some tomato sauce, and some noodles. It's the same base things, but there's there's a great difference in what our earthly fathers uh, enjoy. And and the analogy I, I'm giving is just to say that there is, you know, it's not enough to have the, the basics right. We need to strive after Christian knowledge, because knowledge breeds obedience. You must know your duty. And and therefore, I think we ought to be exhorting Christians to, to say, don't, do not be afraid uh, 
of theology. Do not let it puff you up. Do not let it um, give you a zeal without godliness, but rather look at theology, true theology anyway, look at it and say, you know, this is, is teaching me about my Creator and my Heavenly Father and the Spirit that dwells in me and my Bridegroom. And there it ought to be uh, trembling and fear and also rejoicing with those things. Yeah, and you are so right. And I think, you know, people get so confused when they consider the theological types as those that lack some sort of love for God and they escape into their Bibles. But really, as you were alluding to, is theology and knowing God in that way is the fuel that fuels our worship. You know, the more we know of God, the more we praise Him, the more beauty we see in Him, the more we can turn to Him and praise Him for those aspects of His glory. And that's what eternity will be, just uncovering new and new aspects of the glory of God, His beauty, that we may worship Him forever. And we're never going to run out of that fuel. And so as we study what God has revealed about Himself, it does fuel our worship that we can worship Him in truth, not just a basic worship Him for three things we know, but the more we see, the more we ought to have our eyes and hearts turned towards the Lord. Yeah, a- amen. I mean, absolutely, there is a need in in the church for uh, precision for the sake of worship and service to the living and the true God. And I know that some people have been, you know, quite antagonistic to this idea, but if you look back, uh, just as an example, when Isaiah reached out to steady the ark, he was, he was struck dead. Why? Because he wasn't serving God in the way that he was called to do it. David had ordered men who should not have been moving the ark to move the ark. And, and so, therefore, there is such a need for us to know our calling so that we can really render, as the Apostle Paul says, a reasonable service. Yeah, and, and we, it is time, you know, to press on to maturity. It's been so, it's been generations of uh, just a lot of milk coming forth from pulpits in our land. Of course, I don't want to indict all ministers of God's word, but there has been just a general a theological laxity for many years. And it is very encouraging over the last decade to see, I really think it is a work of God in our land that God is, um, you know, reigniting a love for uh, the deep truths of who God is and what he has done. And uh, yeah, like we are wanting to press on to maturity to see the meat Uh, of God's word, that we may uh, eat and be strong and, you know, be exercised to discern good and evil as uh, skillful workers uh, who have no need to be ashamed that can rightly divide the word of truth. And that's, yeah, amen to that. I think that is, that is the, the truth of the matter. And therefore, I think we'd ought not to discourage theology. Now, I certainly would discouraged, just cold hard trying to understand uh, theology uh, for uh, the in, in the sense of just wanting to know more academically. And, uh, Jacques Sorin, 
who is who is someone that I have a, a kind of a, a love for, but simultaneously also a wariness for due to his uh, kind of extreme uh, Cartesian logic and some other things that he wrote. In, in preaching a, a sermon on Christian knowledge, what he, he said, and I found this to be particularly convicting, is you can't force yourself to read religious books and understand them and apply them. He said, rather the Spirit you need to, to ask the Spirit to apply these truths and the Spirit to incline you to read and understand these things. But he says that forcing ourselves uh, through uh, theological works, is it's not going to get us anywhere. So therefore, I just I, I pray that those who are listening to this will, will desire on one hand to know more about the Lord of glory, but on the other hand, also to be uh, familiar with um, uh, with the fact that they it, it comes from the Lord. Knowledge of the Lord is, there's an academic knowledge of the Lord, but there's also a need for an experiential knowledge of the Lord. And we need more of that experience today. Yeah, because, you know, I think there is a warning for us in that, is that we can gather all the kindling and fuel of theology to worship, but many times we don't worship God with this knowledge we've gained. And I do think it is the spirit that is the spark that ignites that fuel. And I think we ought to always be checking our hearts as we are reading and studying and searching out the things of the Lord that we're not doing it, doing it in a cold, heartless manner, that it does turn our eyes to the Lord. And if we look at ourselves and find that we are doing this just for some knowledge or pride that we may know more than someone else or for a curious fascination just to delve into these mysteries, we really ought to stop and, you know, ask the Lord to search our hearts and reveal our motives in these things that we may return to searching out truth with a heart towards worship and a heart towards the Lord. Yeah, amen, brother. Amen. I I am humbled that uh, we can we can do this and I hope at some point we can do a, a section on experimental and experiential or set session on experimental and experiential piety and the need I would of love it. that yeah yeah that would be fantastic it is a great it's a great need especially in our reformed churches today that is true that is very true. So for those that might be interested in doing more study on this for their own, where would you direct them to look? What books should they get? What articles? Who should they read? I think that the kind of the, the defining uh, scholar in this area of Reformed scholasticism is Richard Muller. Um, yes. And his post-Reformation dogmatics, which are hard to get now, by the way. Um, Muller's just, Muller is hard to find in general. Yeah, yeah. I e- Like even online, his stuff is tricky. Yeah, so Muller, I think, is is leading the, the forefront there, but also there's stuff coming out of the Junius Institute, Post-Reformation uh, Digital Library, um, the Davenant Trust, which um, I think puts out and, and tries to secure future publication of a lot of things and has some, uh, I think, video lectures and so on, and um, another thing I would I would say is is if you're at an academic institution, don't be afraid to look through uh, scholarly articles and scholarly journals to see what even secular 
scholars are saying about Reformed scholasticism because while they don't understand the, the piety and the uh, experimental side of it, uh, they do. Uh, they are quite helpful, at least in in understanding how figures interacted, and also um, kind of the timeline of things. Yeah, perfect. So, for those of you that want to look into it, there's some places to go. There's a lot to sink your teeth into. It's a huge, broad area, and uh, let's just say, have at it. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly. <laughs> Be be aware when you when you go into it. There's there's going to be a lot of pros to reformed scholasticism. I'm very much in favor of it myself. The the school of thought and the authors, but simultaneously, there has been sort of a revolt against it as well. So I think uh, we need to be aware that there are a lot of critiques, and and perhaps those critiques can also be helpful in in teaching us a few of the the blind spots of those men. Right, right. Good point. So why don't we uh, jump into a fun topic next? As fun as reformed scholasticism is, I am interested in hearing more about, when you were mentioning the other day, the things about the Scottish church in the Netherlands. So, yeah, and and, um, the Scottish church in the Netherlands, that is, uh, I think it's a very interesting topic. And, and the, the one book I'm aware that is online is the history of the Scottish church in Rotterdam. Uh, and, and this book kind of gives an idea of the, the history of that particular congregation, but also who was uh, in Scotland, who was forced to, to flee, um, and and that that sort of thing we can be thankful is definitely uh, in uh, these these books. So to kind of give an idea behind it, um, Rotterdam and and the Netherlands in general. The Netherlands, uh, I guess, achieves a, a large number of foreign congregations within its. It's bounds in the in the uh, 17th century, and moving into the 18th century, they're all going to to be there. And so we're going to see uh, Huguenot congregations come to the Netherlands. We're going to see Scottish congregations, as well as uh, English Congregationalists, are also going to come there. And why are they all going to the Netherlands? Well, there, there's a couple of reasons. On one hand. Um, the Scottish Kirk in Rotterdam, uh, Rotterdam is a city of commerce, and there was uh, long, for a long time, foreigners settled in in that city, and the Scots came uh, and and they settled there mostly as 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 tradesmen, and and some would also come. Uh, during the the persecution and the killing times, but uh, initially they came as as traders and they attached themselves to the Dutch Church and the the Dutch uh, magistrate um, in the city of Rotterdam at least allowed the Scots to set up their own Scottish Kirk where they could have services in English. They could call ministers from Scotland and they were uh, within the realm of the Dutch State Church. And at some point. They were uh, able to, I know that the Scots Kirk in Amsterdam today uh, 
is, I think, affiliated with the Church of Scotland. So, at at some point there was a, a transition, but basically they uh, they appointed a salary for the minister. The first minister um, came, I believe, as Mr. Alexander Petrie of the Scots Kirk, and he was given a salary of 50 guilders, no, no I'm sorry, 550 guilders per year. And uh, the municipal authorities were, were very helpful. They gave them a chapel, and they made sure the Scots were able to worship. And Huguenots, uh, Jacques Sorin, as I was mentioning earlier, he was the pastor of the Walloon, or the Huguenot Church, in, in The Hague. Uh, there would have been a lot of these foreign congregations in the Netherlands, and they primarily surfaced either with tradesmen moving there, and because they were reformed, they were allowed to kind of integrate into the Dutch uh, system on their own, uh, in their own reformed tradition from their, their homeland. Or they were refugees, as the case with the Huguenots and a lot of the Belgians that fled north to uh, the Netherlands and, and founded churches there. So there's kind of this reformed tolerance in the Netherlands where... Um, in English independence, the Brownist, for example, I think they settled at Leiden. Yeah, they settled at Leiden. They were able to establish a church. The, the Dutch authorities were really, if you were reformed, they were quite willing to help you have your own uh, church. They did not see this as a threat. So it's kind of it's kind of a it's a beautiful reformed ecumenicity here happening where they're basically harboring people that are coming from persecution from Scotland, England, France, um, either you know religious persecution or outright you know their people are getting martyred. Yeah. So with the with the Huguenots, it was definitely uh, in large measure, I think, a case of of martyrdom. But this this tradition, it goes all the way back, in fact, to Geneva. There's an Italian church. John Knox was in an English church in Geneva, as well as, I believe, in Frankfurt, Germany, there was an English church that John Knox had some connection to. So this idea of uh, Reformed people settling in different areas and, and being allowed by the uh, local authorities in the local church to have a congregation that functioned as part of that uh, local um, or regional assembly and national synod, but to maintain usage of their old standards as well as um, the preaching and having worship in the way that they were familiar with in their homeland was a definite advantage. So, I mean, with these uh, foreign implants into the Netherlands, like William Ames came there, a lot of English Puritan ministers and Scottish Covenanters came there uh, to the Netherlands. And again, this is a, a topic that we could focus, you know, a whole series on, is um, diving into some of the resources that are available and, and explaining uh, kind of the, the more in-depth history. But there was a positive overlay uh, in or a, a positive introduction into the Dutch Church of uh, a lot of ideas from England and from Scotland. Um, now, the the contribution of the Huguenots, I'm going to have to say, I'm a little fuzzy on. I know that Jacques Sorin came, and during his time, he was a very popular preacher. Uh, William Ames came, and of course, he was appointed eventually to a professorship. 
So um, a lot of these these reformed people from throughout Europe that did come to the Netherlands, they were received with uh, open arms generally by the Dutch authorities. Yeah, which is a, it's a really uh, beautiful gesture, you know, that they did that. And I think, yeah, um, yeah, the churches thrived and there was a lot of that sort of cross-pollination, as you were saying, like, you know, even William Teelink, who's considered like, in a sense, the father of Dutch Puritanism, he was uh, up visiting England and was so moved by the Puritanism, that work of God going on up there, and he was able to bring back a lot of that uh, to the Netherlands. Yeah, and that's that certainly is the is the case. So um, basically, we are seeing a large there was a large scale overlap. In fact, uh, I do know because someone recently gave me an article. It's been probably a year or two ago. Gave me an article that there is. A certain number of works by English and Scottish uh, ministers, Puritans mainly, that actually we have no uh, copies of in English, but we do have copies of them in Dutch. So English, English Puritan authors with only some works translated or written in Dutch. Um, the way I understand it is they were originally written in English, but they've been lost, and we only now oh. have them in Dutch. That's fascinating. A lot more work for the uh, Dutch Translation Society. Yeah, and I don't know how fast they're they're able to kind of run with this, but yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff that happened in the Netherlands. Now, of course, I think this is kind of the the Dutch society in the 1600s. They were in their their golden age. There was a lot of trade going on and that sort of thing. So that really allowed them to to do this, that people were coming there because economically it was prosperous. They were very lenient with things as far as uh, toleration um, religiously goes, perhaps sometimes too much. But um, they did allow these these congregations to coexist in and among their number. But uh, this is not an uncommon thing. Like there is also a, a Church of Scotland in Rome and a Church of Scotland in Paris. Um, so there is a lot of this cross. Uh, wherever there was Reformed people, they would typically try to set up a a ministry to them. But with the Netherlands, um, it. it the theological implications were profound in this. You had the Covenanters coming to the Netherlands. You had uh, English English Puritans coming to the Netherlands and just the cross-pollination between these kind of three streams. It, it built a, a wondrous Dutch Reformed theology, which we're seeing tapped into now with men like a brockel being published and Theodorus van der Groe and others. But, um, yeah, we're seeing a, a wonderful... Uh, we're kind of seeing the fruits now in English of what had been going on in the Netherlands. So we, we can, I think, be very happy about that. Yeah, and I think that's a great for us, you know, uh, to expand our horizons beyond whatever sort of church tradition we're in. And I guess that really just... <laughs> that is the simple application from this is that, you know... I've heard too many stories of, you know, where there's a set of Dutch Reformed churches in an area and they don't work together well with the Presbyterian churches. They Everyone has their picky issues that they want to always bring up or discuss. But, you know, there's so much we can learn from both streams, from the British Isles and the continent as well. And 
as these works get translated, it's really nice to be able to look in there. But, you know, we can all learn from each other. And, you know, as was shown in the Netherlands, multiple reformed groups were coming together. They were sharing ministers, learning from one another, writing works in both languages were getting uh, finished there. And so, you know, why not today? We can look towards now a lot of these translated works. We can work together with reformed people because really we do have a foundation in the Reformation, confessional reformed people in many different denominations that would benefit a lot from uh, more fellowship and more working together. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's um, that's a fair assessment of things. I would put up, uh, you know, kind of the word of caution and say that we, we certainly need to be aware that um, at, at this, uh, of course, going back to reform scholasticism at this time, it was the period of of high orthodoxy. So the Dutch authorities did not necessarily have a great deal of fear that the Scots in Rotterdam or Amsterdam or other places were going to introduce some sort of pernicious heresy or cause some great uh, disruption. But we're no longer in that period of high orthodoxy. So I think this is kind of a, uh, a time for us to uh, uh, take a few steps back and, and be a little wary of, of different theological, theological currents. And yeah, and I guess because the thing is, you know, reformed now is such a popular term. Not everyone who says they're reformed is reformed. Not every church in a usually solid reformed denomination might uphold in practice a lot of the standards they proclaim. So that is definitely something to watch because, you know, even there's there's like baptistic charismatic theology that parades itself as reformed and so we it's yeah the word is an easy phrase to tag on but it's really the truths of the confessions that we need upheld in a solid way yeah no i i agree with you and i think that that's that's what um perhaps makes us uh, a little more um uh wary of of these things is that we know that there's a lot of um, reformed now is yeah it's it's really being used by guys who I would say you know you're not reformed you're not holding to a confession you're you're not in in a uh, theological tradition um, rather it's it's a lot of guys who just you know they believe the five points and uh, they they want to come out as reformed and they're not familiar with a lot of the uh, additional theology and and reformed theology I suppose speaks uh, I would say I mean it certainly does I'm not supposing that it doesn't speak into er every area of life I was just trying to think if that was the best way to phrase it but it does uh, speak into every facet of our existence. Perhaps that's a better way to, to look at it. So we're dealing with how we interact with the government as citizens, our duties to the government, the government's duties to us. That is, is an area in which Reformed theology is, has ventured um, the way salvation works, soteriology, eschatology, all these areas were covered by the Reformers and the Puritans' Reformed scholastics and that is not being covered in, in the thought of many churches that consider themselves to be Reformed. So that's kind of where you're having this, this difference. Is um, In the Netherlands, when these Scottish 
people did settle in uh, Rotterdam, just as an example, uh, it was a period of high orthodoxy. The Dutch magistrates knew that there was some minor differences in church government, for example, but there was no fear that, you know, these guys don't really believe in substance the same things that we do. And uh, today we, we just don't have that unity, if that makes sense. And it's a perfect tie-in to our previous episode where that was J.A. Turretin's issue is that he wanted more fellowship, which is a good desire in and of itself to have more ecumenicity because that is the Lord's will for his church. But it was at the expense of precise doctrine. It was a watering down to include more people. And so even as now we're talking about how the Reformed Church in the Netherlands was inclusive and it did have bronze of brotherly love across certain divides, it's, it is that balance we're constantly monitoring that we can hold the truth but be seeking greater unity, but not at the expense of the truth. And that's, and that's right. And I think that's a lesson we can learn uh, from kind of the Dutch uh, scenario. And I'm sure there were theological controversies that were introduced by the English and the Scottish. Um, but on the whole, the, the influence is very positive, And we see this cross-pollination culminating in a lot of good things for the Dutch church as well as the English and the Scottish churches. But, simultaneously, um, we do not, uh, or we are not as able to do that today because the, the reform spectrum is, is uh, broader than it would have been at that time, I, I dare say. Um, there's, there's a lot of disputes. There's a lot of, you know, how far do we go in our, in our uh, Reformed theology? Right, and we're not done. You know, the Lord has been sanctifying His church and leading her to truth for a long time. And, you know, it's not like, of course, we do want to conserve and hold what was true in the Reformation, but we can still go further. We should still be pressing on to mine the depths of Scripture and apply it to life. You know, I, I I completely agree with your statement. I, I just, I do fear with every fiber of my being that um, it, our day is a day of good stewardship. And I'm, I'm all for writing new books. I'm all for, uh, you know, improving our understanding of, of doctrines, but... Really, I think fundamentally, until the Lord revives His church in such a way that we are seeing conversions and widespread, you know, really uh, changes in, in the spirituality of the church itself and holding to the truth, I think that the call of the Reformed Christian today, who is experimental and confessional, is to be a good steward of the truths in which the Lord has entrusted to you by His grace and His grace only. Um, I, yeah, I, to I totally agree with that because, you know, what it has been is we've been in a long slide of declension for the last, you know, couple hundred years in the church. And so before we can think of advancing on the doctrines of Reformed scholasticism, we have to crawl our way back and recover what's been so lost. Yeah, and that that is the that is the difficulty. I mean, it is becoming easier now with archive.org and post-reformation digital library, early English books online and publishing houses like the Banner of Truth, Reformation Heritage, 
putting a lot of this stuff out, it's becoming more accessible. But I would also say that that uh, I think the great shame of it is is it's becoming more accessible, but uh, very few people are reading it. So um, you know, we definitely need to pray that what has become more accessible would actually become uh, common reading for for folks. Yeah, that's a great yeah, that's a great word, and I think an exhortation just you know. We've been coming for the last 10 years of recovery of, you know, the basic, the five points of Calvinism, and we're hoping and praying that the Lord will continue to lead this recovery of the Reformation theology we've slipped from, and that's part of what we want to do on this podcast. It's called the Forgotten Reformation. People have now seemed to remember about Calvin and Luther and a lot of elements, but there's a whole lot more. There's a whole lot more lot a whole lot more to the theology and practice of the Reformation that we want to recover. And just as you were talking about um, our call to steward, it reminded me of a verse I read today, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. It says, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And if God has entrusted the mysteries of Christ to us, um, he's worked his spirit in, in our hearts to understand his word in these ways. Uh, we want to be found faithful in our stewardship of that word and how we steward the doctrine the Lord has revealed to us and through the history of his church. We want to be uh, faithful stewards of the mysteries of our wonderful Savior. You know, I think that, that what the Apostle Paul is, is getting at is really what I was, I was saying earlier, is we so desperately need to be faithful to the mysteries of Christ and, and the truths of the word that the Lord has given to us. And in this day and age, we need to, to be ready to send people, I think, to these old books and encourage them, you know, uh, <laughs> take ye up and read. And, and grasp what is, is being said here. And, and I hope that that continues uh, to be done. And I hope that, you know, kind of through this podcast, we can put out some, some theologians, but also preachers. I love good experimental preaching. The Lord has, has really used that mightily in my life. So at some point, I would love for us to discuss like some great preachers of the past which that could be like this whole podcast basically if we're you know wanting to yeah and and it's been said that you know the greatest percentage of uh publications in the puritan times were books of sermons and we and now it's like a minuscule portion of the christian book market is books of sermons yeah and actually um if you want to know the 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 truth about me i think sometimes i i masquerade is a bit of an academic but um if there is if i only have a limited money or a limited book budget which i do um i do tend to to uh put on the top of that list books of sermons um and because sermons are really theology applied so um someone was once disputing i i encountered this dispute over what the Puritans had said about presumptive regeneration. And uh, I said, well, the, the real way to know what the Puritans think about a, a number of issues is just read their sermons. Because the sermons are, are the food that they're trying to give to their congregations. And therefore, 
If I look here, my bookshelf is right behind me. I've got Sibs Volume 7. That is, that's Sibs Sermons. I've got sermons by a guy named John Raven, who was a, uh, he was an English Baptist, wonderfully experimental. I've got two volumes of sermons by Edward Payson. I have, uh, sermons by Boston. I have sermons of Gilbert uh, Tennant and a few others. I have uh, sermons by Theodore Svendekru. I have um, sermons by Hugh Cartwright, a, a free Presbyterian minister. Sermons by uh, William Jay. Uh, sermons by John Elias. And uh, sermons by Jacques Sorin. And, and uh, discourses by Merle d'Albany. And those type of things are really the the bread and butter of yeah. our Christian walk and experience. So I would say, pick up and read sermons. Like, do not be ashamed to read sermons. Sermons are are wonderful, wonderful things. Um, so JC, I I do want to know lately whose sermons have you been digging into? Uh, most recently, it would be Robert Murray McShane. Robert Murray McShane. Yeah, a little later, uh, 1800s, but yeah, wonderfully uh, experimental, very applicatory, especially I've been reading his ones on the Song of Songs, which has been really uh, powerful and moving for me. Yeah, Robert Murray McShane, of course, was a very gifted uh, Scottish, Scottish preacher. We, can, we should praise God and ask for more uh, men like Robert Murray McShane. So, you know, we really ought to desire men like Robert Murray McShane. Maybe there's a future Robert Murray McShane listening to this podcast right now. You know, I, uh, I hope so. I'd love... Crazier things have happened. That is, that is very true. But yeah, I guess, you know, our exhortation is pick up books, read them. You know, we are, and I'm speaking to myself here, so prone to laziness. It's easier to pick up the remote and turn on Netflix than it is to crack open the sermons of um, Jacques Saran or Robert Murray McShane. But if we want to grow and be mighty in doctrine, be mighty in the word and recover um, this reformed scholastic knowledge and learning, then we have our work cut out for us. It's not just reading a 150-page paperback that's going to make you knowledgeable in a topic. It is consistent digging, consistent study. And not everyone's called to that in the same way, but I know so many people that, you know, they are just cutting their teeth on Reformed theology, and it's just an encouragement that, you know, especially as guys, as ones who want to be leading families currently or one day, um, we want to be mighty in the Word. We want to be men who know the Lord, who know the Scriptures, who know doctrine, that uh, we can proclaim the excellencies of the one who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Yeah, amen, amen. And I have to tell you, JC, I, I have to admit, I have put away Sorin for the moment. I am been trudging through his, his voluminous sermons. And um, he is, he would be an interesting guy to do a podcast topic on just in his theology and that he can be quite experimental and quite uh, heavy on piety and at other points he's very kind of Cartesian very logical uh, and, and to a degree that it can almost be a bit uh, disconcerting but he certainly was a powerful preacher so lately I've been uh, digging up an old southern Presbyterian named uh, Moses Hogue 
And um, I've also been doing a little bit of reading of Gilbert Tennant and William Tennant. And uh, those, those guys have really been making me quite, uh, quite happy. Um, well, they, they don't really make me happy. You know, they make me dig and look at myself and say, oh, wretched man that I am. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that's tough at times, but sermons are a tremendously wonderful resource. And that is what I think we'd ought to exhort Christians to be reading. Awesome. Well, I think that's, uh, that's good for this podcast. Yeah, that's, that's great. Are we ready to take her off air? Yeah, let's wrap it up. We thank uh, all our listeners for sitting with us once again. Uh, if you missed episode one, check it out. It's uh, it's a more interesting narrative about Turretin's son ruining Geneva. And uh, we look forward to sharing more episodes with you in the future on topics still to be determined. Uh, we brought up lots of options today, but uh, yeah, we are loving this so far and we're probably going to keep it up. Yeah, amen. Thank you. Okay, uh, signing off. Uh, for episode two about reform scholasticism and the Scottish Church in the Netherlands. Goodbye. Bye.